Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, do you ever hear the word habit? or habits, or I have bad habits, or I have good habits, or just the word habit, period. Well, today we have a guest who really has studied this, who knows about it, has really looked into the research about how do we develop habits, and how we might be able to shift them, because I'm sure that just about everyone listening here has something that they want to shift. But before we get into that, we want to get to know today's guest and be able to help you to develop in a positive way. Welcome to the show, James Clear. James, welcome to the show. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, James, I understand just before we went on the air, you're from Ohio. Uh, we always like to take a moment, you know, yourself as an author, an entrepreneur, you have some ebooks that are out, and we'll let the guests know where they can get those in, later on in the show. Uh, but take us through a little bit of your journey and your background. Where did you grow up? What's your story as a kid? And then we'll just kind of go from there So, the, in your expertise now. Sure. Well, I'm from Ohio originally, so I'm a Buckeye born and bred. Um, I was raised in Cincinnati, lived in the same house my whole life. My parents still live there uh, and uh, really loved it here, honestly. My first exposure to habits and kind of a, a big theme throughout my personal story was through sports. So I played a variety growing up and then ended up playing baseball all the way through college. Um, had a really serious injury at one point, was hit in the face with a baseball bat, and kind of it took me a few years to recover from that and kind of work my way back. But I ended up uh, having a, re a really good collegiate career and uh, finished as an academic All-American my senior year. And that was kind of the first place where I really had to learn how to overcome a difficult challenge, and then um, both with the injury and learned how to, you know, what it felt like to fulfill my potential. Um, my dad played professionally in the minor leagues for the St. Louis Cardinals, and so I always wanted to play professionally too, but I never ended up doing that, uh, but I do feel like I – I never ended up doing that, but I do feel like I fulfilled my potential. Uh, and so that was a really meaningful experience for me and uh, a chance for me to practice a lot of the things that I write about now. Um, at the time, I didn't really have language for it. I didn't know that it was uh, some of the, the things I write about are good habits or uh, deliberate practice techniques that were really benefiting me. Um, mm -hmm. It was only after the fact that I was able to connect the dots and, and uh, after I had kind of gone through and looked at the research. But that was a, so that was a meaningful, practical experience. And then on the academic side, I've always been interested in science. Uh, I was a science major in undergrad, mostly chemistry and physics classes. Um, and then I went to business school and uh, worked in the Center for Entrepreneurship while I was there. And that was kind of where I got the itch to start my own thing as well. And so as I saw people launching their own businesses and starting stuff, I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll try this too. And uh, the first two years, I, it's a pretty standard entrepreneur story, but I, I tried a bunch of different ideas and kind of fumbled around. And now I refer to it as the period where I incubated my skill set. Um, but, uh, but after about two or three years in, I realized, oh, what I really want to be doing is writing about habits and performance improvement. And as I started to do that, uh, I launched jamesclear.com, and that was late November 2012. Uh, and as soon as I did that, that idea took off much faster than the other things that I've been trying. And so for the last five or six years now, I've been focused on 
the research and writing of habits, human performance, human behavior, and kind of how it all fits together. Super. Thanks, James. So when we think about, uh, I just want to back up for a second, and that is, what position did you play in baseball? Well, when I was younger, I played all sorts of things, but in college, I was a pitcher. Okay. So obviously, this uh, not obviously, how did the bat come in contact with your face? <laughs> well, this was a, a slightly different story. It was, um, it was actually at the high school, and uh, I, was, I had just touched home plate, and I was walking back toward the dugout. And um, the next person stepped into the batter's box and took a swing, and uh, it flew out of his hands and kind of rotated through the air like a helicopter blade and um, came around the side of my head and smacked me right between the eyes. Wow. So uh, when we think about that, and we'll come into all this habits work, but it's, it's always interesting about how did you overcome, you know, uh, sort of that injury? What were some of the things you were thinking about at that when you, when you had that occur? Well, it ended up being a very serious injury. Uh, I fractured both eye sockets, broke my nose, the bone behind my nose, had multiple seizures. Um, I couldn't breathe on my own. I had to be air cared to the hospital. Uh, I ended up um, being placed into a medically induced coma for, for the night. And then, um, it was really, you know, that was fast, but thankfully by the, by the time, uh, the next day had come around, I, I could breathe on my own again. I had been on a ventilator the whole night. And so they released me from the coma and the next eight months were really the hardest part. Uh, you know, I was more or less out. Uh, I was awake for the first like 10 minutes after it happened, but I don't really remember much after that. But the first 24 hours, uh, I wasn't really conscious of it. But the eight months that followed were very difficult. I couldn't drive a car. I had to go to uh, physical therapy. And, you know, they had me doing very basic stuff. I was, like, practicing how to walk in a straight line. And um, it was it was frustrating. Uh, and so dealing with that process, I didn't really have any other choice other than to take small steps. Like, there there wasn't the option for me to have some radical improvement to uh, to transform, you know, the, the situation I was in. I had to take it day by day. Hmm. And so the, you know, the book that I just, uh, just finished writing, Atomic Habits, is all about this idea, this idea of taking small, consistent, little habits, small behaviors, and accumulating them, uh, this idea of, like, getting 1% better each day. And I was forced to live that out uh, as I recovered from the injury. And so – in that sense, it ended up being very informative and also very reaffirming. Um, you know, I trust myself a lot now because once you've been through something very challenging and have proven your ability to move beyond it or to recover from it, you, that's, that can be a fairly confidence-inducing thing. You believe in yourself a lot. Uh, you know, I, there's all kinds – like everybody, you know, I've got all these things that are busy or things on my to-do list or whatever – but if I'm good about it and think about uh, having overcome something difficult like that, then whatever's on the to-do list today seems very minor and insignificant, and my ability to overcome mm. it uh, seems uh, solid. So in that way, I trust myself a lot, and uh, I don't know that I would say that I'm like happy that it happened, but I certainly learned a lot from it and am probably stronger because of it. Mm-hmm. Now, how did your support mechanism around you uh, contribute to your healing and recovery? Well, and this is another theme that I touch on in the book a lot. Uh, one of the things that makes it easier to stick with good habits is the social network that's around you. Uh, and this is, I guess I'll just say environment, and I mean that in two ways. So first, the physical environment, so the things on your kitchen counter at home or your desk at work or 
uh, you know, in, in your bedroom. Uh, and the way that that environment is structured can make it easier or harder to do certain things. And so recovering from the injury, you know, I had to make sure that I had stuff lined up. Like I really made it a point to have my room neat and tidy uh, so that it was easy for me to get into studying or get into uh, bed at a reasonable hour or to uh, make sure that I could get physical therapy stuff done. Um, and by priming the physical environment, you make it easier to fall into the habits and routines that you, that you need to do. And then the second part of the environment is the social environment. And uh, in this sense, I, I kind of got lucky. Um, you know, you don't really get to choose your family. And I happen to have a very supportive family who really helped me through a lot of this. And then you also don't really get to choose your teammates. Um, in that sense, teammates are kind of like family. Like I didn't have mm-hmm. control over who the guys were that were on my, my college baseball team. But uh, it was a really great group of guys. And I was very lucky to play with them and to have their support um, and, and to have them push me. I mean, by the time I, you know, I had this injury and then I became a college athlete about a year and a half, year, two years later. And uh, by the time I got to that point, um, I was back on the baseball field, but I, I needed to be pushed if I was going to realize my potential again. I had a long way to go to recover. And so those guys really helped, uh, helped me do that. So uh, that's, I think it was true for my experience in those specific ways, but I also think it's true in general for whatever habit people happen to be working on. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that, uh, James. And, you know, one of the things we do on the show here is people's stories, as you already know, encourages other individuals that if you can do it and you have the environment around it, then others can set themselves up to be successful as well. So we appreciate that information and you sharing from your heart on that. So as you go forward, you had this tipping point of really paying attention to habits and how they affect people's results. What have you, and this is a big question and then we can go granular, what have you learned about people shifting their behavior and habit development and habit shifts uh, over the past few years? And then what's your book called again? It's called Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. And when will that be available? It launches October 16th, 2018, so it will be in stores everywhere soon. Okay, and can they pre-order that from you on your site? Yeah, it's already available. Uh, If you go to Amazon, you'll find it right now. Okay, awesome, awesome. So when have you, so let's go back into this habit process. What have you formulated, what have you discovered that will really help the secrets of success listeners today as far as, you know, shifting their life and improving it? Well, we can talk about some of the specific things in a moment, but from a high level, the first thing is uh, a lot of times people say, oh, you can't change somebody or never try to change someone or it's, you know, it's very difficult to change or so on. Um, But there is kind of an interesting phenomenon if you look at your own life. I mean, I'm a very different person today than I was 10 years ago or five years ago. And I I would assume that most of us would say that about ourselves, at least in some way. Uh, The person Mm -hmm. you are today is different than the person you were 10 years ago. So we are always changing. Uh, Change is constant. We're, We're undergoing it all the time. And if that is true, my, the question that I had was, well, can that be done in any kind of, is this change, is it always happening, but is it just happening in some haphazard fashion and we don't really have control over it? Or is there some way to uh, take the reins and design that process? And so that was kind of the thing that interested me as a, you know, my brain kind of likes to try to optimize things or uh, design things. And so I started thinking about that. How can we design human behavior? How can we design our own behavior? And so as I thought about that, I started looking around for patterns. And what you realize is that almost all habits 
have a, a couple of patterns that are very similar, very specific uh, to them. It's not, you don't need different strategies for every habit. Now, every situation, mm-hmm. every human behavior is different, but there are some overarching principles that, um, that apply to all of them. And so I call these the four laws of behavior change, and this is kind of what the book delves into in detail, is laying out what these four laws are, why they are that way, what's the scientific backing for that, and then what can we actually do about it? Can we use these in some way rather than uh, having them use us? And I think the punchline to that is, yes, you don't just have to be the victim of your environment or the victim of your behavior. You can also be the architect of it. And, uh, but you have to do that in a very thoughtful and careful way. So the thing about habits that is both frustrating but also interesting is mm-hmm. that they are a double-edged sword. They can either work for you or against you, and we all have experienced this. You know, like you have a, a small habit that you don't think much about, like, you know, oh, I just do 10 push-ups a day or whatever, and it adds up in a very significant way, and you turn out to uh, be surprised by the improvements that you make in your health. But then it works the same way on the other side. You have a small habit that you don't think about, like, oh, I get a burger and fries for lunch every day, and uh, pretty soon you have 20 extra pounds that you weren't thinking about, uh, just kind of accumulates and compounds in that way. And so it's very important to understand the details of how it works so you can avoid the dangerous half of the blade. Uh, and make sure that you're using that double-edged sword to your advantage rather than to your detriment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So take us through your four, four laws, James. Sure. So the basic idea is that all habits follow kind of a four-step process, uh, a fundamental four-step loop, if we want to call it that. This is, a very, this is a big theme about human behavior. It's all based on a feedback loop. So the first thing that happens is that you notice something. So say you walk into the kitchen and you see a plate of cookies uh, sitting on the counter. So that's called in the um, psychology literature and the research it's called a cue or a trigger. So seeing the cookies is the trigger, the cue in this case. So that's the first step. Second step is there's some kind of prediction or interpretation that your brain does. And your brain is doing this. You know, we often think that life is reactive, like one thing happens and we do something else. But actually, life is more predictive than reactive. Your brain is endlessly predicting what to do in the next moment. So you see the cookies, and then you have this interpretation. You predict, oh, those are going to taste really good, so I should eat them. And this second stage is what I call the craving. So it's, it's some kind of prediction or interpretation, but it gives you some level of motivation or desire to take an action. So you see a cue, you make a prediction about it. If that prediction tells you you should act, then you get to the third stage, which is the response or the routine itself, the habit that you perform. So you eat the cookie. And then the fourth stage is there's some kind of reward or satisfaction. And the reward serves two purposes. The first purpose is that it satisfies the craving. So you you see the cookies and you think, oh, I should eat these. These are going to taste good. And then the reward is it does taste good. So it satisfies that craving that you had or that prediction. And then the second thing that rewards do is they teach you. They teach you what to repeat and what to avoid in the future. You know, if you saw a new type of cookie, for example, that was made out of, say, coconut, and you hate coconut and you eat it, then it tastes bad and you realize, oh, next time I see this, I shouldn't eat it. So the, um, the point here is that as you go through this loop again and again, uh, the reward will reinforce what you should do again and uh, push you away from what you should avoid. Now, the four laws of behavior change come out of these four steps. So the first step is, or the first law is make it obvious. So this is about the cue. The more obvious the cue is in your environment, the easier it is to initiate the habit. The second law is make it attractive. Uh, The more attractive you predict something to be, uh, the more likely you are to take the next step forward. 
The third law is make it easy. So the easier it is to eat the cookie or to perform whatever the habit is, the more likely you are to follow it. And then the fourth law is make it satisfying. Uh, the more satisfying a habit is, the more likely you are to repeat it or the greater reason that you have to repeat it. And then for each of these four laws, you can invert them to come up with a way to avoid a bad habit or to push a, uh, to make it less likely that you'll fall into a bad habit. So for good habits, it's make it easy, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. For bad habits, it's make it invisible, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. Let's and, do, uh, let's, the book let's do that negative, negative one again, James. So uh, let's just go through those steps of the reverse on the negative habit just a little slower, and let's just delve into that a bit because a lot of us have something we want to stop doing and want to shift. So just take us through that again. Sure. So it's an inversion of each of the four laws. So uh, if you invert the first law, it's make it invisible. Uh, so the more that you hide the, or reduce exposure to the cues of your bad habits, the less likely you are to fall into them. So for example, on my phone, I move all the social media icons to a second screen and then inside a folder. So I have to swipe an additional time and then tap an additional time to get to any of them. So I'm just trying to make them less visible, which reduces the odds that I just, say, mindlessly tap the Instagram icon or something like that. So uh, make it invisible is the first one. The inversion of the second law is make it unattractive. So if you can find a way to reinterpret the thing that you previously enjoyed, so for example, uh, people who change their diet may go through this. Like for a long time, you may find bread to be very attractive and enjoyable. But then if you decide to switch and go, go gluten-free and you read all these books about how gluten is terrible for you and so on, now suddenly when you see bread, you interpret it in a very different way. You've learned to uh, recategorize that cue, and so now it's unattractive mm -hmm. to you. Um, the second – or the sorry, the inversion of the third law is make it difficult. Uh, so this is all about increasing friction. The harder it is to do something, the less likely you are to do it to you want to smoke a cigarette and it's right on the table in front of you, well, then it's going to take a lot of willpower to resist that. But mm -hmm. if there are no cigarettes in the household and the closest one is at a gas station 15 miles away, then maybe you'll make the drive uh, and get it, but it's also a much higher friction behavior and it might be easier to resist. Um, and then the fourth one is make it unsatisfying. And so this one is more about layering on an immediate form of punishment to go with, uh, with the habit. Uh, this is what this is what like um, accountability partners are often good for. You know, so if you want to go for a run tomorrow morning, but you find that you often sleep in too late or you're going to skip it, but then you agree with a friend to meet at the park at 6 a.m., well, now suddenly if you don't go, it's very unsatisfying. There's this punishment because you're a bad friend and you're letting that person you know, go there by themselves and so on. And so you've found a way to make the bad behavior, which is sleeping mm -hmm. in late, unsatisfying. And uh, so each of those, and this is true for both the four laws and the inversion of, of those four, they're kind of like a lever. And when the levers are in the right place, good habits are easy. And when they're in the wrong place, good habits are hard. And uh, the same is true for your bad habits. Mm. Thank you for that, James. And, you know, it's interesting because we do health coaching as well. And we, we really do teach people what you're talking about there is that if uh, for us, for example, is we have no bread in our house. So gluten-free, but that's way easier than if the chips are sitting on the counter, it's pretty near impossible to have the discipline not to eat them because they're designed to be addictive, right? So mm -hmm. how can you set yourself up to win is what you're talking about, to set up structure, processes, systems to do it and really 
what you're saying, and we talk about this on leadership too, is nothing happens by accident, meaning you put setting up the structure both to stop doing something and start doing something is critical to your success. One of the core themes of the book is that people don't need better or more ambitious goals. What they need are better systems. Um, we, we often do not rise to the level of our ambitions or our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. So if you can design a better system for yourself, you'll find that uh, good behavior will result effortlessly or naturally rather than trying to force it with willpower, grit, or perseverance. And it's not that those qualities aren't important. It's just that they're not reliable in the long run. Uh, you need other things to be working for you. Anybody can resist the chips on the counter for five minutes, but can you do it all day, every single day if they're sitting there? It's just I, I've, I've never seen a person consistently stick to positive habits in a negative environment. If you're fighting the environment the whole time, you're fighting the system the whole time, it's very hard for the result to uh, emerge that you're looking for. So instead, it's much more productive to redesign the system. Uh, and the way to do that, and this is what the book talks about in detail, is by layering all these many small habits, these many 1% changes, and kind of building a collection of habits. The same way that atoms are the fundamental building blocks of like a molecule, your habits are sort of the fundamental building blocks of the system. And so the more that you build these little atomic habits and collect them together, the more robust the system becomes and the weight of it sort mm -hmm. of shifts in your favor rather than against you. And eventually, if you make enough 1% changes, you end up with some pretty remarkable results. Mm. What you said, James, is so important for the audience is that we fall to the level of our systems. You know, I've never heard it said exactly that way before. That's brilliant, by the way. And so you should own that is that, you know, for those of us listening, is that if we have, have all the systems around us that are not supporting where our goals are or our direction, why would we be surprised that we don't achieve them? So if you think about it, your current important. life, your current results are, uh, your current life is perfectly designed for your current results. So whatever the system is that you have running right now, in many cases it's without your knowledge or you haven't really consciously or carefully designed it, but whatever the system is that you currently have at work, at your house, um, and so on, is the, the results you have are the result of that. So the, the way to change the results is not by changing what you're hoping for or what your, your goals are, what you're wishing for. The way to change the results is by adjusting the daily system, uh, the machine that's kind of running behind the scenes day in and day out. And if you can do that, then... And this is the other uh, interesting or somewhat ironic thing about changing your systems. If you do that, the results will change whether you want them to or not. You'll get better results or at least different results uh, when the system changes, whether you set a goal related to it uh, or not. And this is why people often surprise themselves when they're, they start building new habits. All these other things start happening that they weren't expecting. You know, they build a habit of budgeting, for example, or reviewing their finances, and then suddenly they find themselves preparing in other areas and getting in better shape or doing things like that. And there's this ripple effect throughout the system uh, that happens regardless of whether you set a goal for a particular area or not. Mm, mm, so important. Thank you for that, James. Now, one of the things you talk about is this development of concentric circles. And, you know, we teach around self-awareness here, and that's one of our mastery areas. So just share with us there about your theory about it, your concept, and your work in that area. And what does that mean? Well, uh, this idea is just that 
one of the most effective ways to change um, is not by changing the world at large, but by changing yourself first and then kind of working your way outward from there. And if you can get your habits in order, if you can sort of get yourself sorted out first and get everything dialed in in your daily life, then you often find that that puts you not only in a better position to help your family or friends and people around you, but also in a better position to make a larger impact. And so I think, you know, for me, I, I was thinking about how can I make the biggest impact possible with this book? And one of the things I settled on was, well, you know, I need to get my own habits in order, and I still consider myself to be someone who's experimenting with this and in process. But also, if I can help others get their habits dialed in, uh, and everybody kind of starts at the center of the circle, then, you know, imagine the ripple effect that can go out from there. And uh, so I think the focus is first on personal growth, and then that naturally leads to uh, social growth or improvement in other areas. Awesome. Thank you for that. Now, when you think about, you know, the work that you're doing with others, we want to go on both sides of the coins. Uh, and beyond what we've already said and what you've already said in your principles, what are some things that really get in the way of people, you know, taking steps or being successful beyond what you've mentioned already? Well, probably the biggest one uh, is social environment. Um, social norms dictate our behavior day in and day out in many invisible ways. We don't even really think about it. Um, you know, nobody sits down at the beginning of your life and says, you should be raised in a family that prioritizes music over sports or sports over music or a family that plays chess or a family that is Christian versus Muslim or Muslim versus Christian or whatever. But the, mm -hmm. the culture that we are dropped into uh, from the day we were born automatically starts indoctrinating us in certain ways. And we pick up whatever is normal, uh, whatever is rewarded in our culture, whether that's going to church or not, whether it's, um, you know, playing baseball or playing the violin, whether it's uh, studying math or playing video games. And the things that we're exposed to, the things that people in our little group, our, our cultural group, are rewarded for, those social norms are, they weigh heavily on us. So much so that we do things, we have many habits that we do without even really thinking about it. You walk into the elevator and you turn around to face the doors. Now, there's no reason you have to do that. You could face the back of the elevator, but it would be very weird uh, to violate that social norm. When you have a job interview, you wear a suit. There's no reason you have to wear a suit. You could go in workout clothes. But again, it would be very strange to violate that social norm. And so the point is uh, society weighs heavily on us all. And so you need to think carefully about what you want to achieve, what you want to produce, the life that you want to live, and then look carefully for the groups or subcultures that have that type of lifestyle as their normal behavior. You, uh, the way that I phrase it is that you want to join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it is the normal behavior and you become part of that group, then as you build friendships and as you get to know the people in that group, you're going to become more likely to adopt that, not only because it now looks normal to you, but also because you don't want to lose your friends. You want to stay around these people. Um, and so, you know, for example, a lot of people consider uh, starting an exercise habit to be something that's fairly difficult to do or challenging, requires effort and so on. But there are a lot of people who exercising four times a week is just normal for them. It doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. It's just their lifestyle. And the more that you can uh, expose yourself to those people, the more likely it becomes that it, become, that it is normal for you as well. And uh, I think one effective way to do this is to look for groups that, where the desired behaviors are normal behavior, 
but you also already have something else in common with the group. So the example I love here is uh, my friend Steve Cameron's a company called Nerd Fitness. And it's all about getting in shape, but they also, you know, they have all these things. They have parties where they dress up like Batman and Spider-Man and superheroes and so on. They talk about Star Wars. They, it's nerds of all stripes. And if you show up there uh, and you're already into Star Wars, for example, then you have something to connect with everybody on. You immediately feel like your friends. But then they also, your desired behavior of getting in shape is the normal behavior in that group. And so you start to take on the other qualities not only because they're doing it, but also because you instantly feel like you belong because you're bonding over the Star Wars thing. And uh, so it can be challenging or take a little bit of effort to find that. But if you can find a group where they're already doing what you want to do and you share something in common, I think that can be a particularly powerful way to change uh, socially. Well, I appreciate that. And it's interesting, um, you know, Netflix has these documentaries and just recently watched two or three of them around the CrossFit culture and how these CrossFit gyms and what it's doing, and really it's about family, and it's about support if that's where you want to go. So part of, uh, I'm challenging the listeners here, is like paying attention about who you're hanging out with and how important that is. What other strategies do you have there, uh, James, that can help us on this way to developing successful habits? And, this, and by the way, the one that you just shared is awesome. I mean, we do teach that, you know, who you hang out with is the predictive of who you're going to become. So what else do you sure. have there? Well, so uh, this is one that I, I don't recommend starting with, but I think can be very effective um, for, for a certain type of person and can be informative for everybody. And so that's uh, utilizing habit tracking. Now, habit tracking does three things. So the, the most simple form of it is that, you have like a wall calendar or something, and then each day say that you, you know, meditate for 10 minutes if that's the goal you're trying to, or the habit you're trying to build, uh, you put an X on that day. And then you try to you know, keep this little streak of Xs going across the calendar. And, uh, and so habit tracking, having those Xs on the calendar does three things. The first thing is it creates a visual cue. So whenever you look at the calendar, you're reminded uh, to, to do the habit. So this is make it obvious. It's the first law of behavior change. Second thing is there's sort of this additive effect of putting the X's on the calendar. As you add each one, you kind of get this additional motivation to keep the streak alive, and you, there's a little bit of loss aversion. You don't want to lose your progress. So that's the, the second law of behavior change, make it attractive. And then the third thing that it does is it makes it satisfying. It appeals to the fourth law of behavior change, which is each time you put an X down, uh, it feels good. It feels like you've accomplished something. You kind of have a visual marker of the progress that you're making and the improvement that you're uh, making, and that feels good. But uh, the challenge with measurement is that it now gives you two things to do. So now you're trying to build a meditation habit for 10 minutes a day, and you're trying to build a habit of tracking it and marking X on the calendar. So you have, now you have two things to remember. Uh, and so that's one reason why I say I, I don't necessarily know that you should start with it, but mm. if you're the type of person who enjoys tracking uh, or if you find yourself starting a lot of habits and then falling off track after a week or two, this can be a really effective thing to help keep you on track, add some additional motivation, and just give you a little bit of instant satisfaction whenever you accomplish it. And uh, for that reason, habit tracking can be really effective. And um, we've actually put together a, a habit journal. Uh, you can go to atomichabits.com slash journal, and they, we've got some templates there for, uh, to help people kind of get started on stuff like that. Well, thank you for that, James. So when we're thinking about we have about five minutes left in the show, James. What would you like to leave with our audience as far as taking it to the next level 
and be able to realize our potential and in our purpose. And we do a lot of shows on purpose. I've written a book on purpose. So the audience here, if they're uh, not new, have listened to that quite a bit. So how can I take this to the next level? Well, one thing about building any habit or achieving uh, high levels of performance is that it's a long journey. And as that journey continues, uh, a couple things inevitably happen. One, if you keep, just keep doing the same thing over and over again, then you kind of flatline. Uh, you know, at first, it's maybe a stimulus or it's something new for the body to adapt to, but uh, eventually it just becomes the norm. And what the research has shown, kind of interesting, is that a lot of people, after they build a habit, uh, once it is established, there's often a slight decline in performance because once you can do something automatically, you stop kind of paying attention to whether or not you're doing it well, and little mistakes will flip in there every now and then. Mm. So that's the first thing. The second thing that happens is that you, for many people, you start to get bored. Uh, when you do the same thing over and over again, you no longer feel challenged. It doesn't feel novel to you. And so you start, you see this behavior a lot with people. They jump from diet plan to diet plan or workout program to workout program, or they come up with one business idea and then the next month they're working on a different one. And it's like this endless quest for novelty. And the problem with that, of course, is that it's very hard to get high performing results if you're always switching to something new. You have to stick with stuff for years if you want to master it. And so the way to, to deal with both of these problems, I think, uh, one way at least, is to adhere to something I call the Goldilocks rule. And the Goldilocks rule states that humans achieve peak levels of motivation when they're working on something that is just beyond their current ability. Uh, and in fact, researchers have tried to quantify this, and what they've come up with is it's about 4 or 5% beyond your current ability. Now, you can't always quantify what that means. So, you know, what does it mean to... Uh, to try four or five percent harder in some of these cases. What does it mean to stick to a you know a vegan diet four or five percent better? Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but the point here is that it should be a, a challenge of just manageable difficulty. You can do it, but you do have to put some effort in. But you're succeeding enough that you have feedback and a reason to continue. Uh, so often when we start new habits, we we bite off more than we can chew. We try to do something really impressive. You know, we try to lose a ton of weight in three months, or we try to, um, you know, build this massively successful business. And if we don't get these results, then we feel like somehow we're failing. But the way to achieve long-term results, the way to uh, maintain motivation over the long run, is to continually be searching for these challenges of just manageable difficulty. Um, and if you're doing that, then you're able to continue to look for ways to optimize and get better but you're also able to avoid this kind of tra this trap of boredom uh, and this trap of continually seeking novelty because you're always finding some new way to challenge yourself, but you're still staying focused on the same thing. Um, and I think that uh, adhering to that rule is one thing that you see many people who have mastered their craft, whatever it is. They, uh, they never, it's kind of an endless process of searching for improvements and optimizations. And um, if you can adopt that mindset, then I think you'll find yourself surprised by how much progress you can make. Well, the Goldilocks rule is excellent. So when we, th I even think about it personally, James, where I used to do a lot of running and I just really got bored with running every morning. So then I moved into high intensity workouts and really have, and you talk about pushing a person who's not 40. Um, that really became more of a challenge to be able to go to the next level and changing up even what, how I do that. So for those of you that are listening is to continue to just tweak so that boredom doesn't 
uh, creep in as part of it. Now, James, just before we wrap up and I ask for your last part of wisdom, what are the different ways and, uh, that people can get a hold of you and find out about your work or get you as a speaker or order your book? Sure. So uh, the best place to check out my writing is at jamesclear.com, and uh, feel free to poke around there and see what categories and topics you're interested in. Uh, I've got articles on a wide range of things. The book is called Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones, and you can just find that at atomichabits.com. And uh, most people probably know me from my email newsletter, so uh, feel free to check that out and see if you'd uh, like to sign up. Awesome. So James, if you were to just leave this last bit of wisdom, uh, you, you're going to give me one thought to take away from this interview and the work that you've done. What would that be today? Probably that if many people know that you should start small when you're building a new habit, but you should probably start even smaller than you think. Uh, most people, you know, for example, let's say you want to build the habit of running. They'll say something like, oh, well, I'd really like to be running three miles a day, so I'll just make it easy and I'll say I'm going to run for 10 minutes. But even that is probably bigger than where you should start. It should be something so small like uh, I'll make sure I put on my running shoes and walk out the front door. And that's actually the whole habit. And if I do anything more than that, then it's just a bonus. And mm. I know that that sounds uh, incredibly small, and it's easy to feel like – some people feel like, oh, that's a trick. Like, you know, I know, of course, I'm not just looking to put my shoes on and get out the front door. But what you'll find is that there's this natural momentum that comes from starting something. Almost always the friction is greatest at the beginning of the run or at the beginning of the habit. And what most people, <laughs> most people try to do – is optimized from the beginning. They look for the best diet plan, the best workout program, the best business idea. Um, and then once they find it, they think, okay, I need to go all in on this. But in fact, it's more important to standardize before you optimize. If a habit never becomes the standard, if it never becomes normal, then you don't really have a chance to optimize it or improve it. So what I would encourage people to do is build the habit of showing up first. And then after you've built the habit of showing up, then you can worry about optimizing it into what you want. Become the type of person who meditates every day, for example, even if it's just for 15 seconds. And then once you're the type of person who meditates every day and it happens without fail, now you can worry about making it 30 seconds or five minutes or whatever. Um, but mm -hmm. master the art of showing up, and then you can worry about mastering the art of optimizing. James, wise words for a person of your age. Well done. Thank you very much. Yeah, and I'm, great, I'm uh, not trying to be biased. That's, that's uh, my way of complimenting you and saying I appreciate the wisdom and what you've put together in such a short period of time, James. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, listeners, uh, James Clear, and you can go to jamesclear.com or atomichabits.com. Get his book. Find out more about it. All of us want to improve at some level or another, so start somewhere. And as we mentioned at the end of pretty well every show, if you like what we're doing, if you're appreciating the show, then please share, pass it on, let others know about it. Or if you have the time, uh, leave some positive comments in iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever format that you're listening in. Thank you again for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. 
We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.